in an age of universal instantaneous access to information. With digital phones seemingly welded to our hands, we've eliminated uncertainty. We now have an expert at our fingertips for every question and no longer need to grapple with doubts or exercise judgment. The truth is out there and it can be delivered to us in the blink of an eye. This is how the digital world has reshaped the fluid and intangible process of developing knowledge, judgment, and wisdom. Rather than going through the painstaking effort of gaining knowledge for ourselves or learning the tools of inquiry that can help us sort through the options, tough questions are cut short and alternatives prematurely discarded. This may look like efficiency, but it can also strangle creativity and insight. We have the answer before we even know what the question should be. On today's episode, I'm joined by Vikram Mansharamani, a lecturer at Harvard University and the author of Think for Yourself, Restoring Common Sense in an Age of Experts and Artificial Intelligence. We discuss the importance of relearning how to think critically and holistically about the world around us and how to utilize experts without letting them do our thinking for us. Vikram Mansharamani, thanks for joining us on Hardly Working. Thanks for having me, Brent. I'm excited to be with you. We have something of a tradition on this podcast that we require all of our guests to share something of their background and tell us about their journey professionally to where they are now, kind of their major influences, how their families felt about what they chose to do, all of those things that shape our pathway into the present. So I'm going to ask you to do that for us too. Perfect. Well, I'm, I'm excited to share it with you. I think my story, probably like everyone, is somewhat unique. <laughs> Everyone's story. So my journey really, I think the best timeline to start with is really, I went to high school at Blair Academy on a scholarship provided by Jack Bogle. And that was an influential experience on me for many reasons, one of which was it was a boarding school and I lived away from home and learned to be self-reliant in some ways. But secondly, I got to know Jack Bogle, who introduced me to Wall Street and the idea of investing. After high school, I went to Yale. At Yale University, I, much to my parents' dismay, did not choose to become an engineer or pursue a pre-med path, as is the sort of chosen path among immigrant families, at least those of Indian descent, as their respectable trajectories. I instead found it interesting to study philosophy, politics, economics, etc. And so I did. While at Yale, I found myself interning, believe it or not, at the American Enterprise Institute, working with the Asian Studies Group. And that was a really formative experience because I learned to connect dots and think broadly and yet have a values-based agenda, really, of, of investigation. And that was really, really an important part of, I think, my development. After graduating from Yale, I actually ended up working a little bit in finance and consulting before going back to graduate school. And at graduate school, I went to MIT. Now, the one thing that's really interesting and may come into the conversation later here, Brent, is that throughout my educational experience, I resisted sort of the police-like state of forced disciplinary focus. You know, everywhere you go, they're trying, okay, well, at Yale, you've got to major in something with a disciplinary. Well, I was an ethics, politics, and economics major. Well, I wanted to double major. I wanted to double major with East Asian studies, building on the work I did at AEI with Ambassador Jim Lilly. And they said, well, you can't do two multidisciplinary majors. That's like, you got to find a discipline, some home. Well, I resisted that. And I, and I managed to petition my way out of those requirements. Of course, being a tried and true generalist at that point, it seemed almost contradictory to suggest someone with my breadth of interests 
would go get a PhD, right? A PhD is by nature narrow and deep. And here I was deciding as a generalist that I wanted to get a PhD. And it was for one reason. I wanted to learn how to generate knowledge. I wanted to learn how to think differently. I wanted to learn how to critically evaluate research so that I could form my own opinions rather than regurgitate those of others. And so I, I went for the research methodology and I found a degree program, actually it happened to be at MIT, in the topic of innovation and entrepreneurship. And I said, that's great because that's a little bit of everything. That's economics, that's politics, that's psychology, that's all of the above. And so I got my PhD at MIT in the topic of innovation and entrepreneurship. Along the way, again, being a generalist, I found myself like a kid in the candy store, you know, at, back in grad school. And I was like, oh my God, look at this. There's a whole bunch of physicists here that feel guilty about, you know, the Manhattan Project and having built the atomic bomb. They have this security studies program. And I found myself intrigued by these guys with a scientific background, really paying attention to policy and crossing silos. And so inadvertently, I managed to secure a master's degree in security studies from MIT as well while I was there. Did that, went back after finishing my PhD into some teaching. I taught at Yale University, taught a class on financial bubbles. And even that, I think, is an interesting point to pause on for a second, because even though I was teaching a class to Yale college students on financial bubbles, I taught it effectively as a general education class. This was liberal arts meets a complex, uncertain phenomenon known as a financial bubble. The economics department wouldn't take the class. Other departments wouldn't. And so I managed through relationships with the provost and others to get a seminar status that, that transcended the departments for a period of time. And then I ended up in the ethics, politics, and economics department teaching a class on business ethics as well. So I taught some classes there. I was working in finance to help pay the bills and support the lifestyle to which my wife and kids had grown accustomed. Continued the journey to teaching and speaking and consulting and wrote one book on financial bubbles called Boom Bustology. And that book was really about a multi-lens approach to thinking about financial bubbles, saying that all the specialists in economics and finance would miss it. But if you used a multi-lens approach where you brought in psychology, you brought in some of the political dynamics, microeconomics, macroeconomics, liquidity and fund flows, and sort of put together the mosaic, you would see probabilistically an insight that may not be deterministically provable. And so there you would get an edge. And that's what a lot of the financial community was seeking. So that was the, the first book. Interestingly enough, that book resulted in a lot of speaking, consulting, advisory work. And it so happens to be there was an older gentleman in one of my speaking engagements came up to me after a conference, Brent, and he said, Vikram, I'd love to keep in touch. And he gave me his card. And he was probably in his 90s, I think. And two years later, I heard from him. And he said, you know, your framework for spotting financial bubbles using multiple lenses, fascinating, helpful, helped me navigate a cancer diagnosis. And I said, wow. That's pretty interesting. And that led me to taking a couple years off to just think. And I went to the, I was at the Kennedy School as a senior fellow at the Center for Business and Government. And that's really the origins of where this current book project began, thinking about how multi-lens approaches could be used for navigating all forms of uncertainty, not just financial. And that's where I broadened my own thinking and sort of took my own medicine as being a generalist and zooming out. And the result of that effort continued for a couple of years after is the book that just came out this past June. So long-winded explanation. Well, thank you for giving me the opportunity to share it. No, thank you. And thank you for writing it and for being with us. I think we could spend an hour just kind of unpacking your background because that is some really, really interesting stuff. So that brings us up to today. 
just give the listeners now as kind of an overview. What is this book? What are its major themes? What are the key conclusions that you are drawing in this very important book about encouraging people to think for themselves? Sure. Well, Brett, I think the, the sort of arc of the story is, A, how did we get to where we are? So let's start there. And then we'll get to B and C, which is what does it mean and what do we do? But how did we get to where we are? Here, I would suggest that it's really the explosion of information, the deluge of data, and frankly, it's just scientific progress. We've learned more and more. And as we progress, we have more information. More information has resulted in more opportunities for us to choose. And traditional economic theory would suggest that more choices can only be good. And yet somehow we find from a review of the psychology literature and other areas that choice can both debilitate as well as empower. And so what we find is that with all these choices out there, many of us are left with this low-grade anxiety about choosing the optimal decision of making the optimal choice. And that really has led us headlong into the arms of experts and technologies that promise us salvation from this fear of missing out on the optimal decision. And that is a problem for many reasons, but that's really how we got here. I got, I think, scientific progress, an explosion in information and data, and all these choices that have sort of emerged from that development. You know, we want to optimize. We're uncomfortable satisficing. And that's resulted in this, this FOMO, really. So that's how we got to where we are. And that's really the beginning of the book. Then I turn into, why does this matter? right? So this matters because often we're giving up our thinking. We're literally losing our ability to think critically. You know, we're outsourcing our thinking to these experts. We're being managed. We're allowing them to choose what we find interesting or what we find important. And we're giving up the agenda. We're effectively losing our autonomy. And there are lots of ramifications and we can dive into them. But then the sort of second half of the book, the remaining part of the book sort of gets into, well, what do we do about this? How do we reclaim control? How do we restore common sense? How do we think for ourselves? And some of the strategies I discussed there, and we can obviously dive deeper into any of them, include, well, one of the things we need to do is acknowledge that experts are biased, limited, and incomplete in their perspectives. So we should triangulate through multiple perspectives and multiple experts. Further, we need to retain a mission orientation while experts can help us with tasks. Ultimately, you know, one of the chapters is, I think, titled, Keep Experts on Tap, Not on Top. And I think that captures the essence of it, Brent, which is really experts have a lot of value to bring. We don't want to dismiss them. And for too long, we've bounced like a ping pong ball between complete dismissal and complete deferral of experts. So either you completely dismiss them or completely defer to them. Both of those are wrong. I'm suggesting a nuanced middle ground one where we keep experts on tap, not on top. We extract the value they offer without giving up control. So that's the essence of the book. There's, there's a lot more there, but that's the quick Cliff Notes version, so to say. So I want to pick up on this expertise question. It's a very important one. We're not just dependent, overly dependent upon experts. As you said, there's kind of a swinging back and forth on this where we also have this phenomenon of what Tom Nichols and others have called the war on expertise. So I'm interested in getting your perspective. Where are we now on that, in that pendulum swing? Are we too far over on expertise? Or do you see some signs that we are, in fact, rejecting expertise in some key areas? Yeah, I think you're right. A pendulum is probably a better analogy than ping pong ball because it does swing. And we went from a complete devotion to technocracy and expertise, et cetera, 
that really characterized I would argue our political economic existence right up really through the 2015, maybe 14, 15 era. And then we saw a massive swing back against it. You saw it with Brexit. You saw it with populism rising around the world. You saw it with, we've had enough of the experts. We, you know, we need to reclaim control. And then we saw almost a dismissal of experts, which I think was equally problematic, frankly. It swung really rapidly. And what I'm sensing now, although I don't have scientific evidence to back this up, is that we're now seeing, hold on a second, it's equally bad to completely dismiss and bash experts. There is value there. We need to rely on what they offer us. We need to include them as inputs into our process. And you're seeing it for sure in some of the public health considerations today. You know, you don't want people dismissing experts completely. I would argue you also probably don't want to completely defer to them, but we can get into that also. Well, let's go ahead and talk about that. I think it's directly relevant because we see on these public health questions that we're all grappling with, this kind of a case study in what do you do with experts? You've got people like Anthony Fauci and others who are, you know, advising us from the standpoint of expertise in virology and epidemiology and all of these other scientific fields telling us to go one way or don't go another way. Or, and then you've got kind of this war within the administration, I think, about what to do with all of this expert opinion. When you watch this going on, what do you see? Yeah, look, it's a fascinating case study of exactly the topics I'm suggesting in this book. What I think is really important is to remember that experts live in their silos, right? And they have great expertise and value within those silos, but they almost structurally are unable to appreciate the context and what takes place in other silos. Anthony Fauci is a fabulous epidemiologist who has great insight. However, I have to ask a simple question, which is, is he factoring in the mental health of children being kept at home away from their friends, not playing sports and not learning? There's a real cost to that. Is he factoring in the cost of a missed mammogram? I don't know what it is, but I know it's not zero. Is he factoring in the fact that people are not getting their teeth cleaned at the dentist? Again, I can't tell you what the cost is, but I know it's not zero. And so there's a trade-off. And of course, the economic impacts of a lockdown are dramatic. And that, you know, in a feedback loop can adversely affect mental health, adversely affect children's development over time when they see families struggling and opportunities lost. This is a really complex, interconnected dynamic. It would be foolish to rely on the expert opinion of only one person in that domain. This is a judgment call. This requires critical thinking and on the part of our leaders to factor in all of these disparate perspectives to form a mosaic. And I think a mosaic is probably a good analogy here, Brent, which is, you know, the leadership needs to be an artist. And that's probably right because it's not science. It's an art. And the artist needs to take the tiles from each and every expert to paint that mosaic or to piece together that mosaic. You might want a long, smooth blue tile piece. You might want a sort of rough, white, jaggedy piece. Regardless, you're putting the mosaic together and you're using expert tiles to form that image. You know, I wish I had an answer for what to do, but I do think the complete dismissal or complete aggrandizement of any one particular perspective is probably ultimately wrong. Yeah, I think that's a really good way of thinking about it because unfortunately we're getting, I think we're kind of getting the worst of both worlds right now where you what you need is people at the top managing the experts, right, to get the puzzle pieces and then to put them together and to make those decisions about priorities and about the trade-offs that you were talking about 
that have to be made in this situation. So I think that's exactly right. For myself, I just can't really tolerate kind of one-dimensional thinking on almost any question. There's always a problem. There's always a trade-off, and we have to pay attention to them. So I want to transition from that into the question of how we overcome dealing with complex problems with expertise, not being run by expertise. What are the kind of the mechanisms that leaders should be thinking about to create this mosaic? What's the strategy? What's the mechanism for doing it? Well, one of the first things is sort of perspective, right? As sort of acknowledging, as I said, that each expert opinion is limited, biased, and incomplete. And, you know, so Joe Nye, a former dean of the Kennedy School, a prolific author, has a very concise way of describing how he views people and their opinions and some of the biases they may bring. He says, if you want to know where people stand on an issue, look at where they sit, right? And so if you have a large geopolitical tension point, you know, you want to know where the State Department, someone comes to you and they're from the State Department, that's where they sit. You want to know where they stand on it, they're probably going to recommend diplomacy. You want to know where the person who sits in the Pentagon stands on the issue, they're probably going to stand on a military action. You want to know where the guy from Treasury has his, he's probably going to recommend sanctions, right? And so if you want to know where people stand, look at where they sit. I thought that was a very concise way to describe it. But what it also means is that connecting the dots becomes as important, if not more important than generating the dots in these times. And so I think first thing to sort of reclaim control and manage all these experts is to really think about them as each and every one as a piece. They're not the whole. You don't blindly give up thinking to pieces. You want to retain control of the whole. It also means you got to be mission-oriented. And being mission-oriented means having a set of values or an objective that you are targeting. That's a values-based call. That is something that is not right or wrong. It's a belief system that drives you towards a particular objective. And I'm not going to pass judgment on whether that objective is right or this other objective is right. But if you have an objective, then you have a framework for incorporating expertise into your objective, right? And so the, the analogy I've used here, sort of the mission orientation, I've talked about how cardiologists, you know, often pay attention to heart health and that's important, right? So imagine going to your cardiologist and your cardiologist says, Brent, you know, your cholesterol, you're in great shape, you're doing well, cholesterol is creeping up. And your cardiologist, she happens to be younger than you. And she says, you know what? I'm taking a statin. All of my colleagues are taking statins. In fact, everyone I know that's a cardiologist takes a statin. It's a good thing to do. It's safe. You should do it. And you say, okay, fine. You do it. She take it. Next year you come back, your cholesterol's dropped and she claims victory. She says, look, we've achieved our objective. This is fabulous. That's probably not the right thing to say. It's not our objective. It was her objective. She was worried about cholesterol. You're worried about heart health. You're worried about longevity. And in fact, when you go down the hall of the medical practice to your endocrinologist, your endocrinologist might say, ah, Brent, I'm a little nervous. You're showing signs of insulin resistance, maybe early stage diabetes. I'm a little bit concerned. By the way, early stage or pre-diabetes comes with a elevated risk of heart attack. And so we want to watch this. And so at the end of the day, your risk of heart attack may not have changed, but your cardiologist living in her silo claims victory. That was because her mission took control, not your mission. And if you take your mission as being heart health or longevity or wellness or what have you, then you ask different questions, which is what are the side effects? How could this prevent this from happening? Taking a statin, go ask your endocrinologist. Well, if I take a statin, do you think this will have any impact? I know it's from a different domain, but maybe it will. And you sort of stay mission oriented. 
So I think that's another key part of sort of managing these experts is retaining your mission over theirs. Fascinating. And I think that whole idea of you need these multiple perspectives. So you need a team around an issue, not just an individual visionary leader who's going to press through and, and impose their their will on the problem, whatever the problem, the mission is, but you need this team of people who are coming at this from different perspectives in order to bring all that disparate knowledge and the multiple chairs where they're sitting into that discussion. Yeah, Brett, I would even go so far as to say, it's critical you have disagreement on that team. The last thing I want is a bunch of yes men sitting around the table that have full agreement with everything I say. If I'm putting together a team, frankly, I, mean, I go back and I, read, I love reading Doris Kearns Goodwin's book, Team of Rivals, for this reason. Bring in the disparate perspective, pull together the people that are competing with you, that have different views, et cetera, and harness the value of diversity in a true intellectual sense rather than an identity sense. I don't want people that look different but think the same. I want people that actually think differently. And sometimes that's because they look differently. I'm not suggesting that's not the case. Diversity in all its forms is probably good. But diversity of thinking is really what I'm seeking. And that team of rivals logic, the disagreement. And in fact, I pulled the book out here and there's a quote which I think captures the essence of it, which was from Alfred Sloan, the chairman of General Motors, who, you know, he, he goes into a senior executive meeting and he asks his senior executives, what do you think? And everyone basically agrees. And he says, gentlemen, I take it that we are all in complete agreement on the decision here. And then he sees that everyone's bobbing their heads along like little bobbleheads, nodding yes. And he says, then I propose we postpone further discussion on this matter to give ourselves time to develop disagreement and perhaps gain some understanding of what the decision is all about. It's fabulous because it captures that tough decisions are never obvious, right? You need that disagreement. It helps you understand actually getting the pros and the cons. And if someone presents you only pros, you don't understand the full decision or you're letting them decide for you. It worked in the George W. Bush administration. My last job in that administration was to lead an agency called the Employment and Training Administration. I happened to be there when all of the layoffs were occurring as a result of the 2008 financial crisis. Every week, I'd get the reports that weren't publicly released on new unemployment claims. And, you know, our eyes just kept getting bigger and bigger as we saw the numbers piling up in terms of unemployment. And then I had to hand over the reins in January to the next team. And I didn't actually get a chance to meet them, but I left a letter for my successor who I didn't have any idea. I don't think she had any idea that she was going to be my successor. But I just said, my only advice to you is to listen to your adversaries. They are your best friends. Pay very, very close attention to what they say because they're, they're trying to save you. They don't intend it, but they're trying to save you a lot of grief by just pointing out the weaknesses in your own arguments. But I put it in an envelope, gave it to the career deputy, and I said, just give it to this person, whoever it turns out to be when they, when they come in. And uh, he told me later that this person came in and uh, opened the envelope and looked at it and said, well, that's very nice, and just round filed it. Didn't give it a second's thought because it's so against our grain that there's a passage in your book where you talk about the fish, the two fish swimming along, asking one another, what, what does water feel like? You know, we're so immersed in our own perspective that it's just extremely difficult to get out of that and 
listening to your adversaries, listening to your critics is one of the ways. What are some of the other ways to get out of your own bubble? Yeah, well, you know, one of the things that I think is always critical is making sure not only do you listen to your adversaries, but that you are mindful about where you're getting the information that you use to form your own thoughts, right? I mean, I I can't tell you how many people I know that would religiously not listen, religiously avoid Fox News, for instance. I think that's horrible. Like you should listen to Fox, not just Fox. Oh, you should listen to CNN. You should listen to other sources. You should read the Washington Post. You should read the New York Times. You should, you should scan broadly. I actually, you won't see it on this or you won't hear it on the podcast, but I have tons of physical magazines here in my own physical. And the reason I think physical is better is because it forces you to flip and see the headlines. Technology is making you, enables the tunneling directly to your topic of interest. You Google search something, bam, you go, you find stuff relating to that and only that. The adjacent information can be really valuable, useful sort of context setting information that gives you a general sense of what may be happening rather than a specific sense in your little area. And so I really encourage paying attention to the sources of the information upon which you formulate your own thoughts. So it's not only going and understanding what experts that disagree with you might say, but trying to be mindful and self-reflective and sort of self-aware to say, well, maybe my inputs are not right. Maybe I should be thinking of using different inputs, or I need to get a broader, wider set of inputs, because that'll help me form a better way of thinking. So, you know, it need not be a different person. It could just be within yourself to formulate. Yeah, I think that's important. And you raise this as an issue in the book. I think that you call this contextual intelligence. Go ahead and just sort of expand on that idea of contextual intelligence and, and how it helps us to manage problems within your framework of various kinds of problems that we approach. Sure. But well, I mean, if you think about it, we've gotten so focused on, you know, I'm going to stick with a probably overused analogy here of dots, right? So we've gotten so focused in our society on generating dots. You have the whole academic enterprise generating dots, dots, dots. You produce people who come out and generate dots. Industry is generating dots. Somebody's got to connect them. Somebody has to understand the integrated logic, the context in which all of these dots are being generated. You've got to be able to take a step back and see the big picture. Again, a very sort of proverbial logic of sort of see the big picture, but that's really what I'm talking about. All of us at some level, we all need to take a step back and see how all of this comes together. So it's the integrated thinking that becomes useful. And critical to that is the context, because how do I integrate economics and politics and sociology and mental health and public health into a dynamic? Well, I need to have some sense as to how these interconnect. And so the context matters. And so context helps us with understanding interconnections. And so being aware of the context is really critical. And surprisingly, this actually has even cultural dimensions, right? I mean, there's been some academic research done on presenting someone a picture and seeing whether they pay attention to what's in the foreground or in the background. And, you know, Asians will, for instance, often see a lot more in the background than than some Western cultures see. The Western cultures are more focused on here, whereas the Asian cultures will see the mosaic and they may not see as much attention. They may not have as much attention to detail on the here, but they see the, the context. I think this is actually something that merits a lot more attention on all our parts, which is seeing how things fit together. Yeah, that's an interesting point. I remember seeing something on this in a documentary where they talked about, if you look at traditional Chinese art, you'll find a lot less emphasis on human figures 
and a lot more on the background, the terrain, the natural environment, so that your mind is drawn to this yep. larger picture that we all need to be really need to be paying attention to. We need to be able to, we need to be able to switch, right? We need to be able to move back and forth between fine detail and broad context. We need both of those things. So I wanted to go back to something that you said very early on in this conversation. You talked about a low-grade anxiety about information. I think I see kind of a another anxiety at work that's driving this. And I wanted to get your thoughts on it, which is what I see a lot of is a lot of anxiety about the future, especially in terms of economics. Even before this, the coronavirus crisis came along and put everybody out of their jobs, but just in general, a real fear, particularly among parents and their kids, because the kids are watching the cues from the parents about preparing for a viable economic future, that really militates against broad education is what I'm seeing. That anxiety, it tends to push people toward narrowing their focus rather than being broad. And it feels like to me, that's kind of a key point where the paradigm needs to shift is how we think about the education of the future for our children and preventing them from falling into this too narrow focus because it starts very, very early. So I'd like to hear your reflections on that. And then maybe you can take us through this conversation that's happening between Yale and National University University of Singapore. Yeah. Well, Brent, so I agree with your assessment that we're forcing children generally to specialize probably too early. And we see it across the board. And I think the impetus comes, frankly, from some of these college admissions processes, right? I mean, it used to be 30 years ago when I was applying to college, you know, being well-rounded was good. Decent student, well-rounded, lots of skills, sort of interesting, you know, maybe not the best at anything, but pretty good at a lot of things. And that was a really good recipe to get yourself accepted to an elite college. That's not a good recipe today. Today, the phrase being used is you got to, you know, to get into an elite college, you better be spiky. Spiky means you got to be round, but you got to have something that you're really, really, really good at. It's not okay to just be like the editor-in-chief of the newspaper and, you know, a straight-A student and great standardized test scores. You better be state champion in the 100-meter dash. You better be youth symphony first chair violinist. You better have done research that got published in Nature. Or what so what's the, what's the logic behind that? I think it's a shift that's taken place at the university level from a class of well-rounded individuals into a well-rounded class of spiky individuals. And that brings greater prominence to the university. It's sort of, there's a whole bunch of reasons that you could argue from an incentive structure that they would want to do that. So you don't see sort of a parental insistence on relevance or connection between education and work as being a big factor in that? Not at the elite education, not at some of the elite schools. I, I do see that parents generally, and I've talked to lots of them in the course of my consulting and advisory work, there is, and I agree with you, an anxiety around the economic future. And it's driven mainly by, I think, a technology fear, which is technology's taking jobs away. What do I do? Where can I kid go? What can he do? Does he have to be a coder? Does my son have to study computer science? Does my daughter have to be a computer science or an engineer of some sort? or a doctor? Are those the only things left? Like what, 
what do I do if my son studies philosophy, God forbid? You know, that kind of stuff. So I think there is a practical concern that arises across the country. So I might have seen a bubble, perhaps less reflective, you know, in the students that I teach at Yale and I, or I taught at Yale and teach at Harvard. So maybe that's not fair. I don't think I have a great perspective from a student side angle, but my consulting advisory work and my interaction with lots of people in the public say that you're right. There is this anxiety about professional opportunity. And I think that's going to result in a major rewrite of education. And I'm sort of bothered by it. Brent, I'm bothered for this reason. It's generally led towards more focus on skills-based training. Give someone something practical that they can come out with and use that gets them a job. And those skills, those things that are taught, unless you're going into a company that values those skills today and is willing to constantly educate you on the skills of tomorrow and the day after and the year after, et cetera, you're creating a fundamentally inflexible labor pool that's based on the skills needed of today. So what you're doing is you're creating the need to constantly educate people in skills rather than a broad education, which fundamentally teaches people how to adapt and think differently and learn. I mean, it's sort of trite to say it's overused, but a broad, a liberal arts education teaches you how to think, how to learn. It doesn't really teach you something. And this is the fundamental sort of trade-off that takes place, which is learning how to learn may not prove as useful in the short term. But in the longer term, it may, in fact, enable a more flexible labor pool that can adapt to different needs over different time frames. And so it's a question of where the burden of constant training should lie. Should it lie within the individual that they themselves can adapt and learn and have ownership over and self-determination and you know, self-reliance and sort of have autonomous control over where they and their lives go? Or do we think of them as cogs that we can train here, move them here, retrain them here, move them there, retrain them there? I like to think humans would probably thrive if they were in control of themselves and could sort of pursue what they find interesting. Now, I realize that's not for everyone. I realize you can't do that. Yeah, I mean, we see this all the time in the data from employers about what's wrong in the workforce. You ask them to give give you the top 10 things that they're looking for that are missing in the workforce. And two out of 10 might turn out to be some sort of technical skill. And most of it is about critical thinking working in teams, communication, both written and spoken communication, all of these things that they're the kinds of things I think that we got used to thinking of as givens, but they aren't really givens. They have to be thought through. They have to be encouraged. They have to be developed in a lot of different ways. Being on a sports team is one way of learning some of that. Taking seminar classes where you're actually forced to integrate your knowledge and speak and communicate with others is really, really important. And I agree with you. I think that the liberal arts is the foundation for that. Just looking at it from an instrumental standpoint, we need more of it just because we need it, because the economy requires it. But I'm also curious to get your thoughts on human happiness in this regard. I suspect that we've got a lot of people in technical fields that aren't actually all that happy. Have you thought about that? I have. I've thought about it as a parent of of two children. I do think about that a lot, right? And, you know, the the sort of idea of specializing them early or too early really bothers me. And it's sort of the, we we can think about it as we want to let them explore before they exploit, right? So explore and sort of scan and then drill down. So the explore or exploit transition, I think we have sort of accelerated that too early in most kids' lives. So that's number one. 
The other thing I would say is I subscribe to the idea of sort of, I don't think my wife would appreciate me describing it this way, but the sort of spaghetti theory of parenting in terms of activities and pursuits, right? Which is, I'm just going to throw everything against the wall and we'll see what sticks. Like, so, all right, you want to try some sports? You want to try running? Go ahead. You want to try, you want to try track? Great. You want to try swimming? You want to try squash? You want to try skiing? You go basketball, baseball, whatever it is, go, go, go. We'll see which ones you naturally find interesting. I'm not going to, as a parent, impose, you will do this and do great at this, et cetera. Same thing with reading. I'm going to expose you to a lot. You're going to read some historical fiction. You're going to read some biography, this, that. We'll see what sort of naturally sort of resonates. I'm going to just make sure I expose you to a broad range of topics and interests and see what takes. I think we do a lot of our kids a disservice by channeling them too early. That's one of the real problems, I think. So, And I think that creates the unhappiness, right? Because you hear about the whole tiger mom, the tiger parenting logic, right? Which is great. You can play any instrument you want as long as it's the piano. Okay? You can do any, you can do any sports you want, except the, as long as it's swimming, you can do it, right, et cetera. And by the way, you're going to do it five hours a day because I subscribe as a parent to this 10,000 hour rule and I got to get you there quicker. Right? So I think that's a recipe for unhappiness. And I think that's maybe something that you're alluding to here, which is they can be technically proficient. They can be off. They can get into the great schools. They can go off to get the, you know, the highly technical degrees. They can become a, you know, PhD surgeon and, and just be miserable because they've never had the ability to do what gives them personal satisfaction. And I don't know if you'd call that human flourishing. I would th- suggest not. I mean, there'd be progress perhaps in some textbook sense, but I think the, the nuance underneath the surface is, is probably not so positive. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I, I think that we start typically with the wrong question. We ask kids what they want to do. What do they want to be? How do they want to make a living? Instead of asking questions like, what do you think you're really good at? Yep. What do you enjoy? Yep. You know, what gives you pleasure that you would do this? Even if somebody said, you know, I'm not going to pay you to do it, but you just do it because it's intrinsically interesting. Well, I would even go so far as to say, Asking it, Brent, is not as good as just observing it. I can ask my kids, but the problem is, you know, they'll think through, what do, what do my parents want me to say here? Like, what's the right answer? This, so just don't ask them. I'm kind of using asking in a non-literal sense. Yeah, fine, uh, fine, it's fine, like fine. an internal <laughs> question, but your strategy, the spaghetti strategy, I completely agree with. Just so. let it be. We'll see what emerges, right? I mean, my son, for some reason, he has taken to reading a lot of this science fiction-y style fantasy literature. Okay, good for him. I would never have channeled him. I don't like that stuff. <laughs> right, but okay, he does. Good for him. As we get ready to wrap up here, I did want to get to the Yale Singapore redesign of liberal arts education and have you talk a little bit about that. Yeah, this is a fascinating project where I was lucky enough to be at least tangentially involved when I was teaching at Yale. But Yale really had an opportunity to team up with the National University of Singapore to form Yale NUS College. And this was a residential liberal arts college in Asia formed from scratch. So they had none of the baggage that comes with historical university departments and tenure and people teaching in this way, etc. And one of the first things they did, which I think is brilliant, is they eliminated the department structure. So there's no department of economics, there's no department of, and there's no tenure process within it, et cetera. There was social sciences, there was natural sciences, 
and they taught an integrated curriculum. So they sort of flipped it like, hey, we're going to teach you economics and then we'll figure out where it's practical and useful later. Instead, it was, okay, we're going to teach you climate change. And it's going to be taught in a way that we bring in an economist to get that economic perspective. We're going to bring in a perspective. And of course, there's some basic foundational courses, but really you bring it together. There's a thoughtful process on integrated education. And so, you know, I went and I taught a class on inequality over there. And we included sociology, had economics, obviously, politics, psychology, et cetera, all within the domains of a course on inequality. And of course, there were policy implications and there were ethical implications, et cetera. But it was a really unique experiment that's underway right now. And to do it in Singapore, right, in Asia, where they've generally sort of shied away from the idea of liberal arts and they've actually wanted the practical education, which And the early specialization, right? I mean, you're determined at X age that you will be Y. Okay, you're showing propensity in math and science. Great. At age six, you're going to be channeled towards engineering. Or you've shown some compassion and you seem like nice to be warm and you care about your fellow peer. We're going to, and you've shown a little bit of scientific acumen. Great. You're going to be a doctor. Or you're showing a little bit of categorization knowledge, but not really. Okay, we're going to put you in some accounting role here. And they channel people so early. So, kind of revolutionary to have Yale team up with the National University of Singapore and do this in Asia, right? And they did it with a multicultural curriculum that included not just great Western literature, but included, you know, Indian literature, Chinese literature, et cetera, and sort of brought it together to give students a global multidisciplinary view of a lot of the things. So I think it's a really promising experiment, but let's not fool ourselves. It's definitely an experiment and it's underway. So it's an experiment. What do you see and I think you reference this in the book as what are the cultural challenges? I mean, you talked about, you know, this is the way we've always done it, you know, in terms of our education. Are there other social challenges, do you think, associated well, with it? Well, for sure. There's definitely the dynamic of it being in Singapore and, you know, freedom of expression and sort of respect. I mean, look, Yale's a very liberal place. Right? Let's just call it what it is. And they have a set of values that may be inconsistent with the Singaporean government's approach to handling critical thinking about the government, for instance, or social standards around diversity and inclusion of different categories that you might not necessarily feel Singapore is known to be hospitable for, etc. So, you know, you can see there's some potential friction there. There's also the career risk it generates for faculty members that go to teach there, right? So hold on a sec. If I go teach there for five years, I come back, the U.S. infrastructure is all departmental-based. So Okay, which department's going to, wait, who's going to tenure me? Where am I going to show value? How do I show, what? It's risky. And so, you know, it draws an innovative grouping, but I don't think it's, I mean, it has the potential to be really impactful, but the worry I have is it's limited because you don't have an ecosystem, right? I mean, I could teach at Yale a class on economics, and if it doesn't work out, I can find myself going and teaching at Harvard. And there's 50 universities within an hour's drive of me where I could go teach. You go teach in that unique, and I would argue, cutting edge way, and then it's time to move on, or you got to go find something else, family reasons, you don't want to be in Singapore, whatever, your option set's limited. And so I think not having that cluster feeling, not having that critical mass of individuals and institutions pursuing a similar approach may prove to be challenging over time. So, I mean, I think it's yet to be determined. I think that both points that you made are really fascinating. Liberal arts education has as its fundament human freedom and the cultivation of human freedom. And that is not necessarily compatible with 
every governing system and you teach people about freedom and all of a sudden they want it. That's a really interesting potential dynamic in this kind of initiative. I was just having another conversation with the president of St. John's College in Annapolis, which is, you know, I'm sure you're familiar with them, but they're actually engaged right now in trying to take the content that they teach around great books, but also their methodology of teaching, of discussion-based learning into community colleges. Again, trying to integrate these approaches between narrow and broad education to help students prepare either to go on and get a four-year degree or just to be better prepared for when they move out into the workforce. So very, very interesting. I just want to thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today, Vikram. It's just been fascinating. Oh, my Congratulations pleasure. Congratulations on the book. And I'm going to go look up your other books and read those too. I'm so taken with your work. And it's always great to see an AEI alumni who's actually made good in the world. And we're honored to have that association with you. So again, thanks so much for your time. We'll be following you closely in, in your work. Great. Thank you, Brent. I've enjoyed the conversation and do keep in touch. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Hardly Working. I'm your host, Brent Orell, and I hope you tune in next time to learn more about the state of workforce development in America. Be sure to like and subscribe to our podcast. Let us know at vocation at AEI.org if there are any topics you'd like us to cover. As always, we hope you find the job that fits so well, it feels like you're hardly working.